Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Well, I'm just uh, grateful, first of all, for uh, the team that we have. Um, these guys are awesome, and our whole staff and our key volunteers team are just incredible. And it's uh, really nice to, um, to be able to listen to Alex for the last few weeks as he just processes us through the book of Colossians. And it's always great to hear different people and different perspectives and God, uh, we actually celebrate on our team here and in our church, we celebrate the unique wiring and gifting that we have as staff and that we have as communicators and that we have in our whole body here. And so uh, it's fantastic for us to be able to hear from Alex and from uh, Brenda and Pastor Herm occasionally. And so uh, it's just a real treat. And I think that there's a depth that comes to what we walk through when we allow other people to speak into our life. And uh, so I'm just grateful uh, to Alex for the last few weeks for um, carrying the preaching load. And uh, we are going to pick up where he left off. We're just walking through uh, the book of Colossians together. And earlier in the year, I just began to, um, to develop a conviction Uh, personally, and that was that um, the Word of God, like the Bible, has the power to transform our lives like nothing else. And sometimes in church, we talk about it and we sort of run circles around it, but we don't just stay rooted and planted in one place for a while. And so our understanding of what the Bible says can be fragmented and it can be uh, disjointed. And so as we study this book, our hope is that as you sit in it for a while, that the richness of it and the depth of it will begin to actually penetrate your life and your heart and you'll begin to understand things for the first time that you've never understood, that, that it will actually give you strength in your life. There's a verse in Daniel that was uh, just a key verse for me at the beginning of this year, and it says, those that do know their God will be strong and do exploits. And we've seen through this first chapter of the book of Colossians that we can't know God apart from Jesus. That Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That in some mystery that we can't fully understand, he's fully God and he's fully man. But we won't be able to know God and understand him without a deep, deep look at the life and character of Jesus. Through this whole book, we've seen that that the Apostle Paul is is continually pointing us back to Jesus. And there was a period in my life where I thought that was kind of boring, actually. I wanted to get to the great narrative stories of the Old Testament, and I still love those. And I, I wanted to, to read about doctrine and theology and all of those things. But in this last year, I've just been so drawn to the life of Jesus. Because his life, more than anyone else's who has ever walked this planet, mirrors the heart and character 
and actions of the Father. And today we're going to continue just walking through this verse by verse. But before we uh, get into this, we're going to start in, in Colossians 1 verse 24. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to that, that section. But before uh, I read this, Paul is about to talk to us again about the suffering and the trial that he's going through. So he's writing to these people that he's never met in a city that is unknown and, and uh, unimportant, but he's about to go into a few verses here that describe what he is going through and why he's going through it. And I don't know about you, but how many of you know that sometimes it's more important to understand why than what? So we've been talking about the fact that Paul has been in prison, that he's suffering, but sometimes it's more important to understand the why than the what. Like, so as parents right now, we have Eli who's eight and Simon who's five. So we're full on into this stage um, and it's very regular for my wife and I, for Rochelle, for things like, what in the world are you doing to come out of our mouth? And more importantly, why in the world did you just do that? That's probably two or three times a day comes out of one of our mouths as we walk into a, a room or a scenario, uh, whether it's their playroom that looks like an atomic bomb went off and we're going, why, why, why in the world? Would you decide to do that right now? Why? Why in the world would you turn our garden into a mud pit and then run your big trucks through it? I don't know. Why did we put the slip and slide out and instead of slipping and sliding on it, it's now a runway for all your heavy machinery and it's destroying our grass back there. Why? Why in the world would you decide to do that? Sometimes it's much better for us to understand the why than just look at the what. And so as we get back into um, Paul's discourse here, it's, it's vital that we understand the context of the why. So we know that Paul is uh, in prison, he's in Rome, and uh, we know the what. But here's the why. Paul was in prison twice in his life. This was the first time that he was imprisoned. In his imprisonment this time, the first time was much different than his second imprisonment. Paul, after he had gone out on a missionary journey, came back to the city of Jerusalem. And he came back to Jerusalem um, to a mixed reception in that city. A lot of the Christians in Jerusalem were excited that he was there. They had heard about the great things that he was doing, but a good half of them were thoroughly unexcited that he was there and were actually beginning uh, to stir up gossip and dissension to spread lies and rumors about what Paul was doing and what his intentions were. Even before Paul got to Jerusalem, his friends said, don't go. We feel like God has said there's going to be trouble if you go, so we're urging you not to go. Paul ignored their advice, traveled to Jerusalem, and when he got there, half of the people met him with a great reception. The other half of the people 
We're motivated by things like envy and jealousy, Paul says in one of his books, and began to cause trouble for him. One of the issues was, there were two issues that were going on. One, they created a confusion about what Paul was doing in ministering to the Gentiles. So there was a whole group of Christians that were converts from Judaism in the city and they had this sort of belief structure that was let's add Jesus but let's continue to do the things that we grew up doing. Let's continue with the traditions that we learned and the rituals that we learned and the observances that we learned growing up. So we're not gonna really change our life, we're just gonna add a bit of Jesus to it. And these Jews were furious that Paul was declaring it's by grace alone that you're saved through faith. They were furious that he was undermining the importance of the religious practices that they grew up with. They were furious that he was diminishing the importance of tradition. And so in their fury and in their anger, they began to, to spread lies and rumors and gossip around the city that Paul was preaching that Moses and all of the great patriarchs of their faith were useless. It wasn't exactly true, but it wasn't totally untrue either. And then some Christians in the city saw that he was hanging out with some Gentile people, so some non-Jewish people. And they saw him in the markets and they saw him around town. And then when they saw Paul go into the temple, some of them said, look, he's, he's broken the law. He's violated the law by bringing a Gentile into the temple. This is punishable by death. Of course, Paul didn't do that, but that was a convenient excuse to put him on the hook and cause a lot of trouble for him. So Paul's imprisonment at the time of the writing of this book is not because he was a government revolutionary. It's not because he was trying to build a military coup to overthrow the Roman government. His imprisonment was the direct result of the attacks of other Christians against him. It was imprisonment from gossip and lies and rumor mongering and slander and all of those other things. Paul found himself in prison because he was betrayed and abandoned by the people that claim to be Christians and followers of Jesus. This is why Paul is in prison. The why is much more important than the what in this context, because it sets a whole context for what we're about to discover from Paul's writing, that his suffering and that his trials are not just physical. Yes, Paul endured enormous physical torture. In the book of Corinthians, he lists all of the ways that he was beaten and abused and shipwrecked and all of that stuff. But this isn't what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about suffering that's emotional in nature. It's not his chains so much that he's bothered by. It's the people around him that have rejected him that have slandered him. And so we pick it up in Colossians 1, verse 24. It says this, 
Now I rejoice in my suffering. So the suffering he's talking about, it's not just prison sentence. It's anxiety. It's emotional turmoil. It's doubt. It's betrayal. It's hurt caused from other people. Paul begins this in, in And we need to understand when he uses that word now, it's not just a passing word. That word carries with it something much more significant and important. Now for Paul is a statement of intentional perspective. Now in the middle of everything I find myself faced with, now in the middle of this fire that's around me now in the middle of all of my hurt and all of my pain now in the middle of my suffering in this moment in time now Paul begins this discourse with an with an intentional perspective setting posture I have a couple of general thoughts and notes that you can take. But my first one is this, is that perspective precedes peace. You'll never walk in peace in your life until you determine willfully and intentionally that you will set your perspective on the things that God says and does. Perspective determines and precedes peace. Paul can't say, now I rejoice in my suffering if his perspective isn't set in the right place. And Paul's perspective can be set in the right place because he's seeing the big picture. Paul can say, now I rejoice in my suffering, not because he's looking at what's going around and on in the immediate, but because he sees the big picture. Paul isn't looking to the middle, he's looking to the end. And so often we get caught and trapped in life. Our perspective gets skewed and distorted because all we can see is what we're in. But Paul had a bigger picture in mind, a bigger frame that he was looking through. And it's because he saw the end, not the middle, that he could say, now I rejoice in my suffering. That word rejoice is not just the bumper sticker Christian cliche slogan, like God works out all things for good. I'm just believing that that God is going to use this for his glory. No, 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 no. Stop that nonsense. When we're going through stuff, when your family's going through stuff, when your friends are going, don't come at them with cliche quotes from the Bible. Paul is not offering us a cliche quote. That word rejoice literally means to be happy. It literally means to set your mind to something that brings renewal and rejoicing and thankfulness. And Paul says, I am going to rejoice, I'm going to choose because I know what lies ahead of me. I know the end of the story. I'm gonna choose to rejoice because of that, not because of what I find myself experiencing right now. His perspective preceded peace. And some of you today, are stuck, you're cycling in the same uh, patterns of defeat and sin and you're cycling in the same struggles with anxiety and depression. And those are real things. 
They're significant things. But can I encourage you today that your perspective precedes peace? And there's a part of the story that hasn't happened yet that God wants to write in your life. You've probably heard by now the the news of the pastor in California who took his own life last week, leaving a wife and three young boys. And it is absolutely devastating and heartbreaking that anyone would feel like their only course of action is to take their own life. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Maybe you've been in a similar season in your life where you felt like, I've got no other options. I've got nowhere to go with this. Can I just encourage you that what God has planned for you and I tomorrow, although we may not know it today, what he has planned for us is peace. What he has planned for us is good. What he has planned for us is not to harm us or to continue to drive us down into the mud, but what he has planned for us will bring life and hope and renewal and joy. And Paul, in these moments that he's writing this, isn't looking to what's happening in the prison cell around him. He's understanding the end of the story. I want to read to you Romans 8.18. This is how Paul can make a statement like, now I rejoice in my suffering. Romans 8, verse 18 says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 5, verse 3 and 4 says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is saying, I rejoice in my suffering, not because of what I'm experiencing, but because I know that God has in store for me something that is so good and so great, I can't even understand it. And even, even if, even if, for Paul, that ends in my death in this prison, there is a joy that's awaiting me in eternity that no demon in hell can rob away from me because of what Jesus has done for me. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, I can say that my eternity is secure. I can say that I'm stepping into another life, a new life, an eternal life filled with joy and hope, surrounded by the glory and the presence of God. So even if I experience hardship and trouble, even if I'm rejected, even if I'm lied about, even if I experience all of these things, there's still something greater. And this is how Paul can set his mind on the end and not the middle. 
I want to read to you 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10. This is Paul writing. But he said to me, he's speaking of Jesus speaking to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understands that as he walks through these and experiences them in his life, it's building strength in him. It's building character. It's actually the, the foundational work of God to reveal his strength and his power in our life. And so because of that, he can say, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. He continues, and he says, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. I just want to stop there for a minute. This statement of Paul's that I'm filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ has been troubling scholars for hundreds of years, thousands of years actually. What Paul is not saying here is that the work of Jesus on the cross was incomplete. That word afflictions in the original Greek is not used ever to talk about the cross or what Jesus experienced. That word afflictions Paul is using don't describe the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. That was finished and complete and full when Jesus accomplished what he accomplished on the cross. What Paul is saying is that Jesus set out a model for us that according to his Jewish worldview, that if Jesus is the head and we're the body, what happens to the head happens to the body. Paul is saying, look, I'm just continuing on in the kind of life that Jesus led. And the kind of life that Jesus led experienced suffering and persecution and hardship and struggle and toil. And Paul is saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the one improving on salvation here. I'm just continuing the work of Christ. Paul's Jewish perspective in the ancient Near East would have led him to believe a couple of things. Uh, the Old Testament hinted at two periods of time. One period is this time, which they called the, the evil age. This is where the effects of sin on the earth have taken root and form. And the Old Testament hints at these two main epochs of time over and over. The present evil age. And then the Old Testament talks about this age to come where the Messiah would come. And he would bring restoration. He would bring healing. He would bring hope. He would actually bring salvation to the people. And all through the Old Testament, there's hints of this from the, the prophets and seers and writers of the Old Testament. And what Paul is saying here is, look, with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, 
His resurrection initiated this new age, but we're in an in-between spot right now. An already but not yet spot. And what Paul is saying is, look, Jesus has ushered in this new age, but in this world, we're still going to have trouble and trial. But that trouble and trial is for a great purpose. It's not for nothing. The things that you and I experience, Paul would say, are not useless. That God actually wants to take our suffering. He wants to take our trials. He wants to take those things that are meant to break us and actually bring life and hope out of them. New strength for tomorrow. And so when Paul says that I'm filling up what is lacking, he's not talking about salvation or the atonement of Jesus. He's talking about modeling and mirroring a life that Jesus lived. I want to just show you a couple of verses that further illustrate this. John 15, 20, this is Jesus speaking. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Acts 14.22, I'm just going to go through these pretty quickly. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so Paul is going, look, this is just par for the course. If Jesus experienced this and were his sons and daughters, then surely we can expect this. But because of the work of Jesus on the cross, it's not in vain. That our suffering and our trial is being used to develop our character. Paul also saw the purpose of his suffering as bringing hope and comfort to the people that he was engaged with. You know, if you've experienced death, tra especially tragic death or loss in your family, if you've experienced the pain of that, you have a way to identify with people that have also experienced that, that no one else can. We've experienced that several times in our family. And when my brother-in-law and best friend lost his life in a car accident. My mother and father-in-law experienced the death of a child. And that experience, all of the pain and all of the hurt, all of the agony of that allows them to identify with and comfort other people who are walking through that. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm willing to go through this if it means that I can comfort you and walk through life with you, if it means that, that I can help you, if it means that, that I can save you even from experiencing the full depth of everything that I've experienced. I want to help you. And this is where the body comes together. This is where we have a responsibility and a call to each other. Not to walk in isolation, but to allow the things that we've so deeply struggled with, the things that have tormented us even, to allow the things that have caused us hurt and challenge and suffering to be things that bring hope and life and courage and strength to someone else. 
And so Paul is saying, I'll go through this any day of the week because it's not in vain. And if I can save you even an ounce of the hurt that I've experienced, then it's all worth it. If I can bring you comfort in your mourning, then it's worth it. If I can bring you peace in your turmoil, it's worth it. If I can bring you perspective that's higher than the one that you're seeing right now, it's worth it. So when Paul says, I'm, I'm, I'm filling up what is lacking, he's saying, I'm just continuing in what Jesus modeled and led and did in his own life. There's another perspective that comes from Paul's Jewish worldview, and it's called messianic woes, and that just simply means that the Bible hints that as we get to the second coming of Christ, as time keeps on going and moving toward the eventual return of Christ, there was this Jewish thought that as that got nearer, trial and suffering and pain would increase. The Bible talks about it like, like birth pains and, and, and labor. I'm not even going to go there. I was a... I was not a strong husband. Um, yeah, I'm not even going to go there. Um, and what Paul is kind of hinting at here is that there was this Jewish understanding and this Jewish idea that, that since all of this stuff is going to happen and since life is going to get worse and worse and worse maybe for people, if I can save them from some of that pain, that I want to do it. If I have to bear pain on my body or in my heart or in my mind so that you don't have to, then I want to do it. This is a direct opposite from what so often prevails in church and Christian culture, and that's judgment. So often, we want others to experience the pain that we've experienced. So often, we want to inflict pain on others so that they, in turn, know what it feels like to have walked through what we've walked through. So often in our churches, we lead with judgment and anger and bitterness and accusation instead of grace and love and mercy and compassion and kindness like Paul. Paul had every right to lash out at his, at his accusers, at those who had abandoned him and rejected him, at those who had spread lies and gossip that resulted in his imprisonment. But instead of responding with judgment, which he may have been entitled to, he said, I'll gladly take what's coming my way if it means that I can bear a burden for you. Can I just tell you that I really believe that God is calling us to be a new generation of burden bearers that we walk with each other in life, that we carry each other's burdens and hurts and struggles. At Mountain Park, we don't really care about programs and ministry and the infrastructure of the church. We care about you. 
We care about walking with you through all that life throws at you. And this is what Paul is saying is actually bringing him great joy. I want to read to you this quote. It says this. Suffering does not mean that Christ is losing ground, but that he is gaining it and that the present age is passing away to eventually herald in the age to come when Christ will reign. I want you to key into this. If Christians are not on the firing line, not confronting sin in our culture, or if our standards are too compromised, we won't have any affliction tied to the spread of the gospel. Have we become too comfortable? That's from a theologian named Bruce B. Barton. Paul continues. And he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the world of, word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but Paul is directly confronting the mystery cults that were um, prevalent in that Greek culture at the time. What he's saying here in this whole discourse, in this middle section, is that Christ Jesus is the mystery revealed. That in Christianity and in faith, there's no secret passcode. There's no secret rituals. There's no secret this and that. That Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That when you understand and know him, you know God. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no, uh, there's no rituals to be a part of. There's no secret knowledge or understanding. The Bible never talks about that. The Bible talks about seeking and pursuing God. But never that God will withhold from you something that is secret until you've jumped through a certain hoop or elevation. There's no hierarchy. As we are faithful in seeking God, he will reveal his character and nature to us. Most of us don't know him because we're not looking for him. In Proverbs it says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search that matter out. What God is looking for are people who are willing to search for him, to seek and to knock, to ask for wisdom, to ask for clarity, to ask for understanding. The Bible says if we ask for it, he's going to give it to us. The problem is we're not asking. And so Paul is saying, look, there's no secret society going on in our faith here. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. Everything you need is found in him. Every answer you have is found in him. Everything he's done is a reflection of the Father. So if you want to know how to walk through life, uncover Jesus' life. Study him. Investigate him. And as you do, God will reveal himself to you. So that's what Paul is saying there. He goes on to say, uh, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, what Paul is saying is, look, this is a mystery because no one on earth could have predicted that God would bring salvation to the whole world and not just a specific group of people. No one in the Jewish world would have ever thought, ever thought, that God would rain his grace and his mercy on the whole world and not just their subset of people. It was so 
out of this world that the Bible says the devil didn't even know what God had planned. He couldn't, he couldn't possibly imagine that God would sacrifice himself for the salvation of the world. The devil had no idea. He knew that Jesus was the son of God. He knew who Jesus was, but he had no idea of the mystery hidden in the heart of God that Jesus' death on the cross would bring salvation and redemption and hope and the forgiveness of sins to the whole world. The Bible says that if the devil knew that, he never would have crucified Christ, ever. And so this mystery is that God loved you and I so much that he didn't demand a sacrifice from us for our sin and for our failure, but that he offered himself as a sacrifice for us so that we could spend eternity with him. This is the mystery that Paul is talking about. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. So what Paul is saying there is his responsibility, the reason that he's struggling, the reason that he's willing to go through what he's going through is so that he can show the world Christ. And he knows that if you just get a glimpse of Jesus, if you get a glimpse of who Jesus is, get a glimpse of what Jesus has done, that Jesus will radically transform your life. Paul knows that. But it starts for you and I with perspective that precedes peace. The second point I didn't even make because I forgot. So you can write it down and is, I don't even remember what it is now, so it's probably not even worth going back to. I did highlight it. Yes, rejoicing renews, re releases renewal. That it's actually as we thank God for what he's done, as we thank God for how he's been faithful, as we thank him, it renews our mind. Your emotions are liars. They'll lie to you and trick you into believing something about yourself or about God that's not true. And Paul says, as I practice rejoicing and thankfulness, it renews my perspective. It renews my faith. I just want to land here as we end this morning. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. What's he talking about? Paul's directly talking about his prayer life that he introduced us to at the beginning of this book of Colossians. What Paul is saying is that I've never met you. I don't know your name. I don't know what your house looks like. I don't know what your family looks like. But I've been praying 
I've been praying and not just praying for you. I've been toiling and struggling and fighting off all of these accusations that come against me. I've been fighting off the struggle to give up. I've been fighting off the anxiety that I face. I've been fighting off the sense of hopelessness that I have. And I've been praying for you. I've been reaching out to God on your behalf. I've been praying that God would fulfill what he started in you. I've been praying that you see Jesus for who he is for the first time in your life. I've been praying for you. And that prayer has come with a great cost. That prayer has come with struggle. That prayer has come with sleepless nights. But it's worth it. Can I just say men in this room? It's time we put our big boy pants on and step up in our responsibility to be prayer warriors in the family for our kids and for our wives. It's time we stop making excuses. It's time we stop looking to our bank account to validate our leadership. It's time that we stop that and begin to get on our knees and pray. Pray for our kids. Pray for our wives. Pray for our community and our city and our nation. Paul is saying that it's prayer that is sustaining that church. He's not even there. He doesn't even know them. But his prayer is effective in producing the results that are consistent with God's heart. And if you wanna see transformation in your life and in your family, if you wanna see real change happen, start praying. And don't just pray when you feel like it. And don't just pray over dinner, but get on your knees and pray. Pray with your kids, declaring the lordship and authority of Jesus over them. That is your responsibility and your right as men. The devil knows if he, if he can get men to abdicate their responsibility and their role, he can wipe out the family. Paul is saying, I'm not even there, but I am there. Because of Jesus and the power of his name, this is how I fight my battle. And I fight on my knees for you. I don't know you. I don't know your life but I've been fighting for you. I've been bearing on my body the marks and the scars of my commitment to see God work in your life. This is what Paul is doing. I wanna leave you with this last verse. Philippians 1 verse two. You can all stand. I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me, Paul's speaking of his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, over 10,000 soldiers, and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. That Greek word, is a combination of two words. The root words pro, which means forward and progress, and kopto, which means to mourn or cut off. Advancement, 
This is the image that Paul had in his mind of a pioneer clearing the bush as he made way for a new place and a new territory. Paul is saying that advancement is moving forward through cutting and mourning, through allowing ourselves to experience suffering and trial and hardship, not running from it, but actually walking through it, that our pain produces progress if it's tied to the person of Jesus. So whatever you're going through in your life, I don't know what it is, but I do know that your perspective precedes peace, that rejoicing brings renewal, and that pain leads to progress. And the way we fight is on our knees in prayer. We're gonna sing a song briefly to close here. And this song, I pray for you, takes on a new meaning after this morning. That God isn't calling you to go out and solve all the problems of the world. He's calling you, he's calling you to pray. He's calling you to pray for your family. He's calling you to pray for your loved ones. He's calling you to pray for your coworkers. He's calling you to pray for your neighbors. He's calling you to struggle on your knees for the purposes of God, for hope and restoration and life and faith. So as we sing this song, I wanna challenge you even just to begin to make a mental list in your mind of the people that you will commit to pray for. And I wanna challenge you with this, that over the next weeks, that you will commit to praying for God's purposes and plans in a new and powerful way in your family's life, in your friend's life, the people that come to mind, that you would commit like Paul said, to toil and struggle. That word is, in the Greek, it actually speaks of preparing for the games, preparing for a confrontation and a, and a battle. Paul says, are you willing to toil like I have to see somebody else transformed by God? There's no hoops to jump through. There's no system to follow. It's just prayer in the presence of God with his strength, with his might, with his courage. We can see our families changed by Jesus. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.